This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Today, a growing number of scientists are talking about their faith, and that includes Dr. Katie Walker-Anthony, a professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks Water and Environmental Research Center. In her new book, Chasing Lakes, Love, Science, and the Secrets of the Arctic. She describes research into methane release related to climate change alongside her very personal journey from Christianity to atheism and back again. Both take place against the backdrop of frozen lakes in the far north of Russia and the United States. Producer Kimberly Winston spoke with Katie Walker-Anthony about the supposed tension between science and religion and how that has played out in her life and career. Katie Walter-Anthony, welcome to the show. Uh, Tell us what it is that you do for a living. I'm a limnologist, and that's a person who studies freshwater or lakes. I started out looking at water quality at Lake Tahoe and Lake Baikal, and then I moved further north into the Arctic. And in the Arctic, there are millions of lakes. Anyone who looks at a map or flies across the landscape, lakes pop out at you. Um, They're a lot smaller, not as majestic (laughs) at the first glance, but I was tasked with figuring out why those lakes were important. And particularly because the lakes are there since permafrost is fine, frozen ground that has ice in it. Um, So I, the focus of my research for the last 20 years has been on understanding how much methane, a greenhouse gas, is coming out of these lakes and its relationship to permafrost thaw. And tell us why methane is important in global warming. Well, methane is a greenhouse gas. Each molecule of methane is equivalent to about 30 molecules of carbon dioxide, so it's a lot stronger than carbon dioxide. And that's over a 100-year time scale. If you looked at a shorter time scale, it's even more potent. So there's a lot more methane in permafrost and beneath permafrost than there is in the atmosphere. So if all permafrost thawed and all that carbon went up as carbon dioxide, we'd be tripling CO2 levels. So the title of your book is Chasing Lakes. Love, Science, and the Secrets of the Arctic. And it's a memoir. And it's a memoir of your life both in science and your life in faith. In the book, you describe how you were the oldest of four sisters raised by parents who were religious when they got married. They were members of the Jesus movement, that sort of free love, uh, follow Jesus Um, very flower child faith from the 1960s and 70s. Tell us what it was like growing up. I can tell you what the culture was like. Um, Very hippie. We, my parents married young. They were very free. They were in the love culture. Um, We moved around a lot when I was young. Um, It was a very carefree lifestyle. At one point, we moved in with some other families to help build an orphanage. And just it was very normal to share houses with other people (laughs) and just nomadic. Um, That all changed when my dad decided to go to college at the University of Oregon in Eugene. And then we started staying in our own house, which was university housing. And shortly after beginning his studies at the University of Oregon, he denounced his faith. He had not been raised um, in any faith system and and in college decided that 
it was not true. So I had one parent um, still believing my mother and my father telling us it was a fairy tale. Um, obviously, this leads to conflict along with financial things and other issues that a young person's not really tuned into, but there was conflict in the home and on the, le- on the question of spirituality, very confusing for me. Yeah. In the book, you say that when your father lost his faith, when he became an atheist, that he started to plant, quote, seeds of doubt in the minds of you and your sisters. And you were only seven years old at the time. Right. And I think this, the doubt even started earlier, um, probably. I remember grappling with at seven and always after that, because you look up to your parents. They, <laughs> they are your guiding light. Um, my dad's a very logical person. Um, very critical. So there was, he also inspired my science (laughs) early on. Um, So to have two parents, my mother was very loving and nurturing. So from the emotional side, she was very tender. Um, And when you're young and and told that, you know, my first reading I ever did was the Bible. So that does get into you. And for a long time, I resented that the reason I questioned even there was a long time when I was an atheist. Um, and d- during that time, I resented that I still had some doubts about it <laughs> because I thought this was all taught to me before I was four, before I even had a choice in the matter, something got in there. Um, so yeah, that was, I had two different voices and two different examples of the types of role models my parents could be. And it, it led to a lot of confusion and doubt. So when you were about 10 years old, your parents' marriage broke up for the first time. They actually got married and divorced again. And that first time they split up and you and your mom and the rest of the girls moved out. And then over about the next seven years, you kind of bumped around between your mother, your father, and his new wife, your grandfather. You were all over the place. I did bounce around between their homes for three years, but I ended up moving out when I was 13. Um, because both parents decided to leave Oregon and live in Nevada. And I, I think at that age, I could already see the instability of the situation. And um, I always loved my family. That doesn't go away. But I also recognized it just was not a healthy and stable environment to grow up in. And I thought, naively, I thought I could do better on my own. <laughs> and you write in the book, that by the age of 17, you've decided you've had enough of religion. And you say, I'm going to live as if there is no God. I love this part. You say you approached it with the mind of a scientist. You said, well, maybe we need to do some really bad sins and then see if we come out on the other side as you conduct an experiment. And you go to Mount Holyoke. And while you're at Mount Holyoke, you have this really back and forth pull between faith and no faith. So you decide to go and ask some of your science professors at Mount Holyoke if they believe in God. Tell me what that was like as a budding scientist to go to people who are established in their career, who are in a position of mentoring you and asking them about their faith. I actually only ended up asking one professor, and he was one that I really looked up to. Uh, I loved his classes. I was a geology teacher. He taught biology, and I wanted to change to biology because of the inspiration of his teaching and his thinking. He had us reading books and discussing them in such provocative ways. And I remember at the end of one of his ecology classes, he read us something 
can't remember what he read, but he started to cry. And it was in the beauty of the natural world. And it was then in, in his emotional response to it, I already knew he was an atheist, but it was because of that emotional response that I went to his office and said, don't you think that something that you just read also would point to a creator? Um, and he said, no. <laughs> and, but in the back of my mind, I knew there was another professor at the college who was a believer and I'd never had a conversation with him. I'd never had a class from him, but I stored that information away in my mind. It was very important there just to know that it was possible that not every scientist was an atheist. As I was reading this book, I made a note in the margin that by the time you got to UC Davis, and I'm reading between the lines here, that you seem to be struggling with being either a person of faith or a person of science. There, there can be no overlap there for you. So I want to ask you, when did it become an and for you? Do you know what I mean? When do, do you remember when you realized you could become both, you could be both a person of science and a person of faith? For me, it did not become an, an and until I was uh, during my PhD in Alaska Fairbanks and I lived, Fairbanks, Alaska, and I lived in a little cabin um, by myself on top of a hill. I was surrounded by 90,000 people even if I lived in a cabin with no running water and an outhouse, um, I was still surrounded by a larger population, but I was lonely. And as all people do, or many people do in that situation, they just start grasping for things. And so I would try to fill the holes in my heart with relationships, romantic relationships, friendships. Um, I tried to fill it with academia. I loved, I was beginning to find my own identity in science and loved it. It was getting exciting. Um, <clears throat> but it wasn't all. <laughs> um, so I was alone in this cabin and in that started to face what was it inside of me that was hurting and missing. Um, and I cracked open my Bible, something that I had taken to Russia with me when I was 16 and went there as an exchange student. This was, that was long before the internet. In that year, I could make one phone call home to my family. Um, so I was completely isolated there as well. And I had my Bible that year. That was the one familiar thing I had. And I read it. And then at 17, when I decided I'm not going to believe in God, I put the Bible away. But as a graduate student in Fairbanks, in this alone time, I pulled it out again. And <clears throat> there were words there that just cut to my inner being. And that's where I started to get a little fearful of the tension between my aspirations of becoming a scientist um, and possibly being a person of faith or getting identified that way. So when you cracked open that Bible, what spoke to you? How did you know? I mean, you're an intellectual person. You're conducting an experiment about faith. How did you know? Well, a couple things happened. The words I was reading in the Bible were a mirror of me. They were showing me who I was, but they were also telling me who God was. Now, a big part of my doubt all those years was, if God is good, where does evil come from? Um, was could Were these miracles real? <laughs> Jesus rising from the dead. You know, I had a long list of reasons why I agreed that Christianity was probably a myth. Um, so, in addition to the Bible, I also read books. I read some apologetics books, and those 
apply, those really um, spoke to my mind. Um, I also, I think, being raised in a very poor family and moving around, um, I also just had this feeling of being a nobody always. And at one point, so, and then I would, and during those years as, in, as being a PhD student, I would sneak into the back of church when it, after it started and I would leave before it was over because I didn't want anyone to talk to me <laughs> because my, you know, my life was highly non-Christian. <laughs> I was involved in all kinds of things that uh, I, I knew would not dovetail with Christianity. It was a good Friday service and they were singing a song and I sang the song too. Um, and during that song, God spoke to me. It was not an audible voice, but it was clearly him. And he said, Katie, do you know that if you were the only one, I still would have died for you? Because I always had heard, he, you know, Jesus died on the cross for all people. He loves all people. Well, that still made me feel like a nobody because I was one of billions. <laughs> but moment where he revealed to me that he loved me. And even if I was the only one, um, that that was worth it. And would I accept that? And when you, I heard that from God, <laughs> and because I was so sure that it was him, there wasn't a doubt. Now there was no doubt. My answer was, yes, you can't say no to God when he's saying that. You said here, and you also say in the book, that there was a point at which, after you found your way back to Christianity, you started to wonder if your Christian faith would impact your career as a scientist. And I want to know if it has, in either good or bad ways, how big of a deal is it for you to wear both of those labels? Well, I would say that being a Christian has impacted my life in science, and so far only in a good way, because I don't think, I can, tr I can trust um, that God is guiding my way. I don't think at all what happens, my success and failures in science are solely dependent on me. And that, that takes a lot of pressure off. Um, I pray about the work I do. And <clears throat> I think God opens and closes doors. The successes I've had are not just from me. They are, I, I believe they're because God has enabled them. So now I have not worn the public label of Christian all these years. Certainly some people know. If you come to my house, you'll know. <laughs> uh, now that I've written a book, <laughs> I guess I've admitted it. Um, so it's possible that there will be people that don't want to associate with me anymore because of that. And I think that's a shame because it is for thousands of years, people of belief have also been very good scientists and we wouldn't have the foundation of science and even present day science that we have without the contributions of people of faith. You mentioned Catherine Hayhoe. And um, I also have her book on my bookshelf. And she is a climate scientist. She is also an evangelical Christian. And she's at Texas Tech. And she's become very well known for speaking publicly about how people of faith and people of science have a lot in common. She's made a name for herself sort of as a translator of science to Christians who may reject science. Do you ever have conversations with people about science because of your mutual faith? I love Catherine Hayhoe's approach. Um, in the circles that I go in, I find I do need to be a little careful um, because I don't know where the other person's coming from. And so I choose my words carefully. 
a lot more for me has been on, like, I've always done my work in the context of an old earth. Um, so I go to church with people who believe in young earth. <laughs> so I have to tread that carefully. What you mean by young earth? Young earthers are those, tend to be Christians, who believe, using the Bible as a guidebook, that the earth is only about 6,000 years old. Am I correct? Yes, that's right. Yep. Looking at genealogies in the Bible. And so, depending on the person, but people have very strong emotional and spiritual reactions that you do have to be sensitive, especially if you want to talk about things that, that matter, like things you spend your time doing. So, I do climate science. And I guess what I would say is that, well, let's start with, there's several things to consider. Science itself is useful. If we didn't have science, I would have died in labor with my first son. You and I would not be having this conversation remotely from different parts of the country. So science, science is useful. Um, and as a culture, every day we're putting our trust in data. I love data. And I think the reason I went into science instead of social science is because of the objectivity of data, data. don't have an agenda. And I really love that. We have moved into a culture now where science is getting used as agenda science, and that bothers me. I think it's actually taking away from um, science because scientists are getting politicized. And then a lot is at stake in how they interpret the data. And I, I really think as scientists, we have a responsibility, whether it's old earth, young earth, or human-induced climate warming versus natural cycles. Um, we, we need to, as scientists, stay open-minded. And so for me, as both a person of faith and in science, I, I find that my number one internal goal is to pursue the truth and that they go hand in hand. That was Dr. Katie Walker-Anthony, professor at the University of Alaska's Fairbanks Water and Environmental Research Center. She was discussing her first book, Chasing Lakes, Love, Science, and the Secrets of the Arctic. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, additional sounds by Blue Dot Sessions, and Audio Binger. And a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by myself, Kimberly Winston, and Kevin McCarthy. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week. <laughs>